Yesenia Funes, welcome back to Temperature Check. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I cannot believe it's already December. I know. Um, are you ready for the year to end yet? You know, I think I'm ready for this year and maybe even next year to end. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome in. Uh, I'm Andrew Simon, and this is Temperature Check, a podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. And today, so thankful that she's returning, uh, my co-host, Yesenia Funes. What's up, y'all? Love to be on Temperature Check. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Yesenia. Uh, and again, Yesenia is the climate editor over at Atmos Magazine, an online publication that covers climate culture. And our big interview on today's show is Chelsea Frazier, who studies Black feminism in a field called eco-criticism. But first, uh, we want to chat with you a little bit, Yesenia, uh, about the the news of the last week or so. And I think top of mind for climate folks is that former Secretary of State John Kerry is going to be President-elect Joe Biden's climate czar, i.e. the climate envoy, which has a position on the National Security Council. And, you know, Yesenia, what do you, what do you make sense of this move? I feel conflicted. You know, it's super exciting to see the President-elect create this position that's focused on climate you know, plays an international role. But I'm, I'm just feeling a little underwhelmed by the choice. John Kerry uh, has been in the game for a minute, so he does have that experience, that history. Um, you know, he helped work on the Paris Agreement. But he's also just sort of like establishment politician. You know, a lot of progressive advocates were hoping for something I guess, fresh, someone new that could really show and pave the way for climate justice. It's not entirely clear to me uh, if he's going to continue the same vein with the group he launched, I believe it was earlier this year, um, that's looking to create bipartisanship on the climate conversation, or if he's going to be more urgent about things and, you know, say, screw politics. I'm not too excited about it. You know, super dope that we have this position and I hope that it exists for as long as we have a White House and a climate crisis. But I'm also not thrilled to just see another old white dude doing the job. Is there something Kerry and his team might look to as a starting point when it comes to uh, making progress when it comes to environmental justice? Yeah. I mean, this is going to be like an international position is my understanding. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious about what climate justice will look like on a global level. I would hope that he would take the kind of steps to bring, you know, clean energy into the forefront internationally and take more of like an adaptation and mitigation approach instead of just like, I don't know, disaster recovery approach to the climate crisis. But it's just all really up in the air. He has this like, bipartisan program he launched, World War Zero, trying to, you know, bring bipartisanship into the climate conversation. And I think that's super helpful and important in politics, right. but it also raises the question of, like, what role do Republicans play in addressing the climate crisis and in centering justice at the heart of the response there? But, you know, who knows? People change, people grow. So maybe he'll surprise us and, you know, maybe he'll be all woke and do all the right things. 
John Kerry all woke. I, I like that. I mean, that would probably be good for the climate. And I know it's a relatively new pick, but have you heard anything yet in your reporting or seen anything online, perspectives coming from environmental justice advocates and how, how those leaders are thinking about the pick of John Kerry? I think that there's some sort of excitement around having someone with this level of experience in this position because it shows just the seriousness that the administration is giving it. But I've also heard from a lot of folks of just, you know, what is he going to do? Some of my pals over at Earther did a piece looking at some of his history around fracking and concerns that he may export essentially this, this fossil fuel extraction method. Um, yeah. which is not what needs to happen in our response to climate change globally. You know, a lot of countries look to gas and methane as a quote-unquote bridge fuel. But what folks want to see is just the, uh, just the jump straight into, you know, renewables and clean energy. So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Yes, indeed. Uh, we will have to wait and see. Well, coming up on today's show, again, we have Dr. Chelsea Frazier. And you say you're familiar with Dr. Frazier's work, right? Yeah, yeah. She's worked with us over at Atmos. She's written a bit about Black feminist theory and uh, eco-criticism, which you mentioned early on, which is really dope because it looks at the intersection of literature, art, uh, and the environment. Yeah, that essay was great. The Temperature Check team read it, and we just felt like we had to have her on the show because the show's about climate, race, and culture. It's like, how could we not talk to Dr. Frazier, a professor, uh, a researcher, and uh, what I found to be a really just awesome uh, conversation about these topics. So Dr. Fraser stopped by to help us understand all these connections that you just talked about, Yesenia. And also we talked Beyonce, Issa Rae, and how uh, these women are sort of taking uh, the torch, if you will, for, again, this notion of, of Black women historically uh, being protectors of the environment. So it's a great conversation. Without further ado, uh, let's get to it with Chelsea Fraser. Uh, this is Temperature Check from Grist. Hi, I'm Mirka, the Social Media Engagement Fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. So thank you for joining today's episode and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome in Dr. Frazier. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. We're thrilled to be with you as well. Um, and before we jump into conversation, I just want to ask, h- how are you doing? What's what's going on in the life of Dr. Frazier? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm actually doing great, which I know is an unpopular feeling right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am very, very grateful. And I'm very grateful that my family is safe and alive, yes. that my friends are safe and alive, and that every day presents, I think, a new opportunity to deepen into uh, a more critical <laughs> uh, reaction to everything that's going on. And for a professor and scholar like myself, there's nothing greater. Well, that's great to hear. And I'm, and I'm grateful to be here with you. That's something I'm grateful for. So, so let's get into it. Okay. What was a moment in time that just drew you to this work? You know, I'm just wondering as far back as you can remember, like what was some kind of 
uh, turning point moment where you you just realize for yourself, I have to pursue this line of work, right? Making these connections between Black feminism, the environment, storytelling, and more. Yeah. Um, there are so many, honestly. Mm. And the the longer I do this work, the more I see how some of my earliest memories um, are really attached to a conviction about learning more about my place in the environment. Um, I'll give yeah. you two examples. Yeah. One is um, I was in, I think I was an undergrad and a friend of mine was like, I'm going to go hiking today. And I was like, what? Why would you do that? That's white people stuff. It was a knee-jerk mm-hmm. reaction, right? Um, and I was and she was like, what are you talking about? Like, how how could you say that, you know? And right. then I really sat with it and I was like, what am I talking about? Like, where where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Especially yeah. because I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And if you know anything about Minnesota culture, it's just very kind of outdoorsy, naturey. Yeah. You kind of can't help it if you try, you know? And I yeah. had one of those families that was very, very active and very into me going to camps and doing mm. all this stuff, despite the fact that, um, you know, at the time, my mom really didn't have a lot of money and she was single at the time as well. But when I was very young, she made sure that I was that I was going to have a, a relationship with my environment that was really, that was full. Okay. And I don't think that she did this with the intention of being like, I'm going to instill environmental ethics in my daughter. I think that right. she just wanted me to have kind of like a well-rounded you know, uh, as leisurely and fun, you know, balance as possible, you know, childhood, right? And so I had to take a step back when my, when this friend was like, why would you say that? Because I was like, that's not even reflective of my personal upbringing. So I'm not sure mm. why I, why I kind of blurted that out to you, which sort of like, uh, I think grounded my investigation into a lot of um, our disconnections, not only as sort of like a larger society in the West from ourselves and the environments, but also how that has played out in terms of like a trauma-related cultural injury within Black communities specifically. Another thing that I think about a lot is the fact that when I was mm, maybe seven or eight, we watched some little documentary in my elementary school about the amount of plastics that were used on toys Mm. and how terrible it was for the environment. I remember going home and just being like, mom, we have to stop this. Like, it's madness. We have to do our part. And I just was like, went through my kitchen and tried to do all of the little, all the little um, like suggestions that they said. And one of the things that sticks out to me about that particular moment now was it was just this one moment. It was just this one documentary, this one lesson in time. And it was so fleeting that I really couldn't even build on it at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about the children in my life in the way that I aim to really instill a different kind of environmental ethic in them that isn't so, hey, care about the environment. And now we're going to move on to Thursday and you'll never hear about it again. Right. So I remember, again, being super convicted, but now sort of like in hindsight, thinking about the fact that that was not an an integral part of our curriculum. Yeah. And probably a a one on one question for a a professor like yourself. But, you know, what makes art and literature such a powerful vessel when it comes to stories about the environment, but more specifically stories that might enact some type of change? So when I began my work almost a decade ago now, I noticed that most prominent scholars in environmentalism or environmental justice were typically like sociologists or ecologists, biologists. But the ways that I came into my own awareness about ecology was really through storytelling, specifically Black women storytelling and Black feminist storytelling. And so I 
thought about that question for some time and sort of some of the, or one of the conclusions that I've come to at this particular stage in the game is that stories really make up our reality, right? Interwoven stories that have crystallized over time really comprise our reality. And so stories were one of the first things that I I turned to to think about uh, how we make sense of ourselves in relationship to the environment, right? And so I wanted to think about the fact that if stories could comprise reality, how could stories unmake a reality and really um, set the groundwork for creating an awareness of new kinds of relationships between ourselves as humans and also other members of the more-than-human world, which include, you know, flora, fauna, minerals, trees, etc. Yeah, and I've heard you say in an interview that one of the reasons you decided to uh, do this kind of research is because you didn't see yourself, i.e. a Black woman who cares and thinks about the environment, uh, reflected in the books and studies you were coming across. So yeah. I'm just wondering, why have these voices been excluded um, historically? My work is really not about, you know, diversifying the environmental movement or diversifying environmentalism mm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's really about thinking about the ways that when you center a uh, a Black feminist perspective, it changes the conditions upon which we even think about nature or think about ecology, mm. think about the ways that things relate to each other. Because you have to take into account anti-femininity, uh, anti-Blackness. Um, you have to think about these things that... Uh, a mainstream environmental ethic kind of obscures. For example, taking into consideration the fact that the environmental movement um, is really an extension of Western imperial expansion, right? Mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so if you if you start with a Black feminist perspective or you put just a Black woman at the center of that particular conversation, it just, it, it produces a different set of knowledges, right? A different set of perspectives um, that, potentially, <laughs> can offer more prescient solutions. Yeah, and what, what do people typically miss about the role Black women have played when it comes to protecting the environment? I think this is changing, but I think that when I first began this project or, or set of interrelated projects, people were like, huh, Black women in the environment. Interesting. Like, it was just like, right. it hadn't even right. really occurred to anyone that Black women cared about the environment. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Black women are presented as like wasteful figures, right, in the pop culture imagination, mm-hmm. whether that be because of their hair practices, their spending practices, the way that they mother, the kinds of right. neighborhoods that they find themselves living in due to all kinds of circumstances, some of them within their control and many beyond their control. In addition to the fact that there is a particular way that Black women are kind of scapegoated. They're just like pop culture scapegoat in the West for a lot of reasons. But I think because of those things, you know, when you think of a good environmentalist, a Black woman for most people is not the image that readily comes to mind. You know, mm. you might think mm. of like a, a sort of a Gwyneth Paltrow looking person getting into a Prius coming out of Whole Foods. <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. You don't necessarily think about um, the Black woman next to you as being um, right. as being sort of like as spearheading uh, this notion of of sustainability or or um, or repurposing certain objects and materials in order to extend their life or things like that. This isn't new, right? I mean, according to your research um, and your writing, I mean, how far back does this go, you know, when it comes to, again, this history of, of Black women protecting the environment and also expressing that care for the environment? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes it goes way back. I mean, it goes to yeah. times immemorial. You know, you can argue with a lot of scholars about what blackness is and sort of when it began to go here as sort of like a, an, an idea. But um, if we're thinking about blackness as a relationship to African indigeneity, right? Let's look at the lens of like the transatlantic slave trade, for example. You're right. talking about African women coming over to the new world. And these were women who, because many West African societies were matriarchal, were charged with leadership roles, right? And in many of those polities, the environment was not necessarily considered outside of oneself or this kind of like thing that you go to for recreational or leisure purposes, right? Right, right, it just right, was, right, right. It was interwoven with, into society, into politics, into cultural norms, et cetera, et cetera, whether that includes herbalism or spiritual observance. Right. There were just lots of things that were, were, again, like what we think of as the environment was just, it just was. And so when those women came to these shores, they brought that knowledge with them. They brought those practices with them. Some of them even brought seeds with them. Right, right. I think Leah Pennyman of Soul Fire Farm, if I'm not mistaken, talks about the fact that, you know, Black women literally braided seeds into their hair so that they mm. could feed their families, feed their communities, because they didn't know where they were going, right? And so when you think about those kinds of things and you connect that to right now, it's not that Black women are like, oh, let me get up and save the world and save the environment and, and protect it as sort of out of nowhere. It just comes with the territory of being a leader of one's community, right? And so the categories of Blackness, Africanness, and indigeneity really come undone when we think about the long history of the ways that Black women have been environmental protectors. Mm. And I'm not saying that what Black women in the West are doing now is sort of like an exact replica of those particular practices or anything like that. But I certainly do see cultural and historical retentions. Yeah, and staying on the topic of environmental justice, now more than ever, uh, the environmental justice movement has garnered a lot of attention. And I'm just wondering, you know, is your work in particular, is it meant to fuel a deeper understanding of representation and history, you know, in the space of the environment, let's say? Yes and no. Um, I, <laughs> your question kind of bespeaks like a, uh, maybe an interest in like diversity and inclusion, perhaps, you know, right. like sort of making sure that black women, um, or black people are represented in this like broader environmental discourse. I think that that is, um, sort of an incidental effect of my mm, work, but gotcha. it is not actually my central aim. Again, my central aim is to think about the ways that black people, black culture has always, had sort of an alternative understanding of relationality to the environment, a relationship with the environment, yeah. um, a different understanding of embeddedness within the environment that has always been just kind of a foil of, of Western abstract thought, right? That presumes that man is somehow outside of his environment. It's just a very... what what. Um, yeah. Black African descended or Black African diasporic culture suggests is something alternative to that particular ethic or that particular idea. And so I'm interested in charting that idea. I'm interested in charting what that makes mm. possible for us in 2020, right? And beyond. I'm not interested in widening my place at the margins, right? I'm interested in inviting people over to a different mm. center, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. And you use the word center. And um, when I read your work, I mean, I can't help but think of the question, you know, how do we best center the voices, stories, ideas, research of Black women when it comes to moving forward and really advancing environmental progress? 
Yeah, I think two things, you know, listening and money. Yeah, <laughs> that's clean and simple too, right? <laughs> it's real simple, you know. Uh, it's just like actually listen. And the money part is really another part of the listening. Because right. if you listen, that's you right. find out that, you know, black, in order to do this work, Black women need resources. <laughs> and not just Black women, right? Like low-income communities of color, yeah. um, communities of color in general that are led by the actual people who are on the front lines. They need resources and money that are not conditional upon being shoved into what I think about as sort of like the environmental justice corner. It really is just about thinking about who is actually leading the charges of particular movements, particular initiatives that are affecting people on the ground, finding out what they're saying, making sure that they have the resources that they need is yeah. putting putting your money where your mouth and your ears are, putting mm. your privilege to use, mm. right? You don't have to be guilty about your privilege. You can just use it for something useful, you know? That would Put be your privilege much. to use. I like that. That sounds, it's very concise and actionable. Considering that we're living in this moment of multiple crises happening at once, yeah. something I've wondered, uh, and you're the perfect person to ask, I think, mm-hmm. are we also in a moment that might give birth to a new wave of art and artistry and stories, you know, work that helps make some sense of this current moment, but can also carry the conversation forward when it comes to environmental justice, Black women as protectors of the planet, Black women as leaders in general. It, you know, are we at a moment that, you know, considering all the crises that have come out in 2020, are we still at a moment where art and the potential of art and story really could could be unlocked like it never has before? Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all of my faith is in Black creativity, always. It's what Mm. sustains me. It's what energizes me. It's the reason why when you asked me how I was at the video call, I said amazing, because I still have access to Black art and Black culture. Mm -hmm. And um, I still have access to the new portals that open. One of the reasons why I'm really a student of Octavia Butler is because in the darkest moments, she always reminds us that there's opportunities and destruction. Mm. And that can sound kind of bleak, mm. you know, but if we turn to, and the, and many people in the country have turned to the, the Parable series, which is one of her bleakest series for mm. sure, right? But there's this idea that permeates the book, which is we are in a destructive moment. We are in a moment of turmoil. This is a rupture, right? right. And what those ruptures do, what those breakdowns do is expose everything that is out of balance, right? Yeah. And so... What I believe that 2020 has presented us with is an opportunity to really sit with that, sit with those ruptures, right? And many people have taken on that, many people have taken that opportunity to heart, really, you know, because most people didn't have a choice. We're in quarantine. You got to sit down and think about yourself, right? Yeah. And I was really struck by your work on Octavia Butler. She's really foreshadowing in in some of her work, not just the effects of climate change, uh, food and water scarcity, extreme weather events but also what we now call environmental justice, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that I love most about Octavia Butler is the fact that she really effectively weaves together the ways that environmental degradation and societal ills are interwoven within each other. And I've written a little bit about this. And because they're really not different, you know, we see all of these extreme weather events happening right now. And it is no surprise that um, our personal turmoil sort of as a society is also at an all-time high, right? Like these things are interrelated. One of the things that our ancient ancestors knew is the fact that we are a reflection of of our environments and vice versa. So if something's going wrong with the weather, it's probably because there's something going on with us, right. <laughs> you know, um, right. to put it very simply. And that's something that she captured in many of her novels 
just sitting down and bringing a little bit of introspection to your own relationship to the environment, how you make sense of the environment, what you think about nature. Because most of us as a society are taught to not even think about it at all. And so what art does is remind us to come back to ourselves. Mm. It reflects our thoughts, our deepest desires, our deepest fears, our deepest levels of introspection back to us. I'm drawn to art that invites me to do that. And I think that a lot of people are not only taking that art more seriously right now, but are also taking themselves more seriously and begin to and are beginning to create it in earnest. And so I'm I'm extremely encouraged by that. We're moving on to the pop culture part of the show. And today in the hot seat, we have Dr. Chelsea Mikhail Frazier, who looks at the intersection between Black feminism and the environment. So staying on the theme, let's take a look at how those ideas are showing up in music and the silver screen. Are you ready to dive in, Dr. Frazier? I'm ready to do it. Let's do it. All right. All right. So when I think of strong Black women bringing attention to these issues, I personally have to start with Beyonce, uh, hands down. Her 2016 music video formation highlighted the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But are there other examples from her work you can point to that uh, might also speak to environment, climate change, justice? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do not have to ask me twice to talk about Beyonce. (laughs) Perfect. You're on the right podcast. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, Yes, the formation video, incredible. Lemonade is one that knocked my socks off, really. And one of the, you know, this sort of like looming theme of introspection, that's really a visual project where you see a Black woman or a group of Black women healing themselves within various, quote unquote, natural environments. Um, There's a lot of sort of elements of nature there that are there specifically to aid those figures in their healing journey, right? Um, A healing journey that really is necessary because of the injuries of masculinity, particularly Black masculinity in the West. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Oh, love, they don't love you like I love you. Mm. That's a metaphor that was not lost on me when I watched Lemonade the first time. And then you have Black is King, which is a very different perspective, also about healing, mind you, but a much more balanced representation. Black masculinity is not held up as sort of the site of injury in the same way, but more so the balance between divine feminine and masculine energies is celebrated and kind of amplified to the in the most glamorous Beyonce esque and Jay Z esque ways mm-hmm. that one could could do that work. And you also see in that video a lot of really powerful imagery that again bespeak ancient yeah. African yeah. traditional religions and philosophical systems that um, again are rooted in thinking through, observing, and paying reverence to forces of nature, whether that be Orisha and like Mm -hmm. Yoruba cosmology um, and many other African traditional religious references there that, again, are rooted in nature or what we think of as nature, right? So I like what Beyonce and her team are doing there to really bring a curiosity to these particular ideas and images. Another artist that comes to mind is Megan Thee Stallion, right? Someone who's taken to social media, who's encouraged beach cleanups and eco-friendly habits, right? Yes, absolutely. Huge fan of Megan Thee Stallion, um, fellow tall women, yes. (laughs) Um, But also, (laughs) 
she posted an Instagram video. I want to say maybe it was a year ago or a couple of years ago. And she was just talking about this sort of casual interaction that she had with one of her fans. Mm. And one of these fans is like, hey, you know, Megan, can you can you use your platform to bring a little bit more awareness around climate change and environmental degradation? And she, you know, very casually, you know, while applying her makeup, hair pinned up, is telling about this um, interaction she's had and talking not only about her interest in maybe organizing a beach cleanup, but also... She's drawing attention to all of the like all of the bureaucracy around this particular initiative and why it actually is like really difficult to organize these kinds right. of things. But that's something that is very like that's not new, that's not uncommon. And if you really think about, you know, somebody of her resource and of her stature running into like bureaucracy around doing something like cleaning up the environment, it really lets you know how dire the situation that we're in. And what kind of challenges that Black women face when these ideas sort of like drop into their awareness and then they try to take action. Yeah. And speaking to that direness of climate change and almost a little bit of that, um, those moments of feeling helpless, Issa Rae snuck in a mention or two of climate change. Uh, I think it most recently, uh, I, I should say the most recent season of Insecure. Yes. She ha- Issa Rae has specifically talked about her interest is it necessarily the responsibility of celebrities and creators in that way to bring awareness around these things? No, not necessarily. Is it their is it their responsibility to be like well-versed activists? I personally don't think so. But the fact that they feel convicted to do so and use their platforms to do it, I'm very encouraged by. And I saw recently, I think it was a Bustle article, one of her most recent articles, I want to say it was in Bustle, where the interviewer asked her what's next. And she's just like, I'm just trying to figure out what my role is in saving the planet. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, And when I read that, I thought it was really interesting because in the first season of Insecure, her character, Issa D, organizes a beach cleanup for the nonprofit that she works for. That's right. Uh, Let's listen to a clip from that scene. Um, Were you guys discussing beach day? Oh, it's no big deal. We were just talking and a few of the others had some concerns. Are they concerns that they can talk to me about? I'm sure they could have, but they just emailed me to double check a couple little things. Wait, so there were emails. And her largely white colleagues question her authority. They question her idea. They question its success and the validity of everything that she does up until the very moment that it becomes successful. And then their tune changes. And I was like, hmm, this is a familiar narrative. (laughs) Right, right. I'm thinking of these recent examples. We're talking about Beyonce, uh, Megan Thee Stallion, Issa Rae. Um, for these really prominent, really successful Black women to be putting out stories about justice, about climate change, yeah. and yet I, it does seem like it maybe speaks to some type of extra burden <laughs> um, on top of the challenges of being a Black woman in society as is. To go back to many of these examples, a lot of these women, they are privileged, right? They they do have power and influence in a lot of different ways, but they're still Black women. And so the work that they do, the kinds of um, projects that they use their initiatives to uplift are always going to be viewed through society from that lens, Mm. right? Like, what is this Black woman doing? And also the particular challenges that they face, not always, but are often (laughs) directly related to their position in society as Black women. What a moment to be living in where we're able to talk about so many examples of these incredible Black women. um, expressing these ideas, and really advancing the change. Black women often vote, act, create, storytell, eat, think, move, 
and care in the interests of themselves and their communities. Mm -hmm. And when they do so, incidentally, and this is Kambahi River Collective 101, it ends up positively affecting every single other, you know, person, entity around them. Right. And so that's something that I, I just want folks to keep in mind, particularly as they, as more and more platforms are turning to Black women for their perspectives, for their expertise, for their time and their labor, it is not Black women's responsibility to save anybody. It's everyone else's responsibility, frankly, to put resources, time, energy into the kinds of ethics that Black women have been explaining, have been have been doing, right? And then everyone else benefits. It's not that Black women are just out here sacrificing themselves for the greater good. It's like, no, Black women are trying to stay alive and live as abundantly as possible. And everyone else gets to benefit when we do. Well, Dr. Chelsea Mikhail Frazier, it has been really wonderful to have you on the podcast here. And before you bounce, where can people find your work? Oh, yes. People can find my work at ChelseaFrazier.com, at www.askandamazon.co slash connect. Pretty much you can find me all over social media at Amazon underscore scholar or at Ask and Amazon. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Incredible. Uh, well, you heard it here. If you don't know now, you know. Be sure to follow Dr. Frazier. Uh, thanks again so much for joining Temperature Check. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew. That was such a great interview, Dr. Frazier. So thoughtful, so fun to speak with. Uh, and thank you, Yesenia, for sticking with us. Yeah, of course. It's always such a great time with you all at Temperature Check. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, well, I appreciate you being here. Uh, once again, you're listening to Yesenia Funes over at Atmos Magazine, who stopped by to help us make sense of John Kerry and climate wokeness. Yesenia, where can we find you and your work? Yeah, so folks can find my work at atmos.earth. I publish my Monday through Thursday environmental justice newsletter called The Frontline there. They can subscribe at atmos.earth slash frontline. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for being here, Yesenia. Of course, Andrea. Hopefully I get to come back. Temperature Check is a podcast from Grist. Producing collaboration with Reasonable Volume. It's hosted by me, Andrew Simon. My co-homie today was Atmos Magazine's Yesenia Funes. It's produced by Brianna Flores, with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Gris Chief of Staff and this podcast marketing lead. Sound Engineering is by Mark Bush. Gris is a nonprofit reader-supported newsroom covering climate, justice, and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. Uh, next week, well, um, who knows what's going to happen, but we're going to make a podcast. Until then. <laughs>